We here at the Making Movies is Hard podcast are very happy that the WGA and the AMTPA have come to an agreement, but the sag after strike continues. If you would like to help them, please go to sag after Foundation's Emergency Financial Assistance Program, SAG-AFTRA.Foundation, forward slash donate, and click the link. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bussell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. And I have a new short film called Parka, which is on Vimeo right now. So if you haven't seen it yet, check that out. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently, I don't know, I guess I'm going to go back to saying pre-production. Currently in (laughs) pre-production for my third feature, Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant and producer's rep, and I used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, producer Eric Toms and I welcome writer and director Anthony de Blasi on the show to talk about directing his latest feature, Malum, which is his ninth feature as a director. Ninth. And he talks about how the movie came together and how he finds his projects, which is very fascinating. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz. Ah, welcome back. How are you doing? Ah, <laughs> I'm doing much better. I don't know if this happened to you, but at around like seven, seven and a half weeks of postpartum, like the sky, the clouds parted, like light filtered through the room and you started to see things like as soon as my daughter, actually, maybe it was like five weeks, as soon as she smiled, things got better (laughs) i was like what are you like you're a parasite i love you but you're a parasite what are you giving me back and then she smiled and things got better but i would say it was really really shitty for like at least a month there oh no i don't know how (laughs) what your experience was but i'm just glad to not be in that place anymore how are you? <laughs> Good. I, I basically, like, in the very beginning, I was like, how can I possibly have a job? How could anyone work and have two children? This seems insane. All time, there's time for is to change diapers and to, you know, make sure the one is happy and that the other one is alive. That's all there's time for. There's no yeah. time for anything else. How could there be? And then I, I kept on like week two, week three, I kept on reminding myself like, well, it gets better at week four. It gets better at week five and right. it'll be easier by week seven. And then it's like, OK, you know, by the time I went back to work, it was like, all right, we're all kind of sleeping. OK, and everything's all fine. You know, You're like sleeping. OK, it's not like perfect. You know, you like I, you started pretty strong. I remember when you told me you got like six hours your first night. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, we're getting around six between between six and eight, but for for each of us, roughly. Yeah, so it's it's pretty great, and we have a really a a new system, which I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if I should talk about it or not, it's kind of controversial, but you know, whatever. I mean, there's some co-sleeping happening. Oh, I don't. I'm no judgment on co-sleeping here. No judgment. Yeah, basically, it's like he sleeps. You know, from roughly 10 to between like two and four now, Mm -hmm. which is great. And then, you know, and then and then I leave and then the baby's uh, the baby sleeps with 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 mom. And then, I, you know, I go sleep somewhere else on a couch. And then that's the way that we've been doing it. And, you know, I, it's, it's not fun necessarily to be on the couch all the time, but it's OK, too, because I also get up earlier and I go running at like oh six, God. between six and six thirty. You have enough time to go run. This is like maybe I'm, I'm looking at the running. future. How many weeks ahead are you than me? Uh, just are you two. The future? 
Okay, but maybe in two weeks I could go <laughs> do something. Well, I've been, I've been running since week f- six, oh, five. So, but I'm also the man, you know. So, like, I have, I, I mean, I don't think Beth could, because you know, she's, you know, with the baby all the time but but like it's nice because at least she can get some pretty good sleep during that time you know yeah. because she still does get up but the getting up like in the beginning the getting up was like a, an hour to an hour and a half process but then now that we have this new system where they just you know I take the baby from the crib and put the baby with mom and then they just breastfeed and sleep and it's like easy you know like oh no problem God. That sounds wonderful. But like we used to do like it would be like an hour of like changing diapers and breastfeeding and then getting him to go back to sleep. You know, that was like the first five, six weeks. But then we got off that system and now we just do this other system and then it, we system. don't even change it. We don't even change his diaper and because he doesn't usually poop at night anymore. He was pooping all the time at night. Now he doesn't really poop at night very much, really. So like as long as he doesn't poop, we don't change his diaper. And so it's just like a smooth process. From like, you know, 10 to 7 a.m. or so. I'm like, I'm torn because it's like, <laughs> I think of this as all very interesting and I want to ask you tons of questions. And then I I'm know. like, how Who many cares? people care about this? <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> like, I care about it, but a lot of people don't care. Wait, can I jump into something really briefly? Because sure. I was super pregnant walking down the street listening to an old episode of ours. And... <laughs> I wanted to bring up the fact that I said something negative about hyphenated last names and no oh, one gave yes. yeah no one gave me a hard time about it but I've been like plagued with guilt for the past several <laughs> weeks about even saying anything negative about hyphenation <laughs> so I just want to acknowledge that no, there's nothing wrong with hyphenating your last name and I don't know why I would ever think of that as a problem well, well it wasn't on the podcast but my friend like kind of was shit talking it a little bit like off the podcast which I think I talked about on the podcast a little bit you know yeah. And it's just like, yeah, well, whatever. You know, I mean, we, we went the hyphenated route and that's cool. I had lots of friends that had hyphenated last names growing up. And, you know, do I wish we just had gone with like four or five names? Maybe. But I also think the hyphenation is fine, too. You know, it doesn't and they, matter. And they can decide what to go by later. I mean, legally, they will always be that. But they can pick like if they just want to go by Brussel or Steel. Like they'll have the option to or they can change whatever it they want later or legally. they can. Or they can legally change it, but they can put whatever the fuck they want on their business card. So who yeah. cares? You know, yeah. in 20 years when they have business cards, who, you know, whatever. Wait, and yeah, the other don't feel thing, guilt. The other thing that I wanted to acknowledge is that we say content all the time, which I have no problem with. Content is not oh, yes. a dirty word, but apparently it is a dirty word to a lot of people. So oh. I just want to say who cares about that too? Art could be content, <laughs> art content to be art. I don't think we use it as a way of like implying that it has no soul or it has no, no. craft to it. I, I, I like the comedy bang bang way of using it. They say tent, slinging that tent, you're slinging right. tent. I feel like right. that that is really makes me laugh and is very funny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't have any problem with content. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like. I, I refer to things as projects, yeah, you know, projects. the next, the next, you know, whatever art, art piece, piece of art, you know, whatever. They're all whatever they are, you know. Well, getting back to what people actually give a shit about, which is our filmmaking. I've been writing. I've written like Yay. eight pages since my son was born. Oh so that's gosh. been pretty, pretty great. I feel like from where I was before, like a quarter of a page in like a month, like I think getting to be getting out eight, eight or so pages is pretty good. It actually might be more than that. It might be more like 10 pages, but whatever it is, 
I'm very proud. I'm, I have a system. I write like right before bed. <laughs> you have another system. There's a, that that is a trend here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Beth, well, Beth will go to bed earlier than me. This is probably part of the problem where I'm not really sleeping as much because she'll go to bed at the same time when like the boy is asleep and like we maybe watched half an episode of something. It's like, then she'll go to bed. And then I'm like, no, I must stay up and play piano or write oh for God. another 30, 30, 45 minutes, you know, cause I just can't help myself. Sleep is but, more important than that. I think I know I should, I, but I'm still getting good amount of sleep though. I still get like seven <laughs> hours. You know, so, We're in you such know. different places right now, <laughs> but eight pages. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but with, have you, I mean, I can't even imagine like, have you, what have you done for your movie? Like, are you still actively working on pre-production or like, yeah. what, what has the process been lately? My producers have been meeting without me. We met with our casting director and we're, wow. we were going to do the SAG interim agreement, but we are, th- we're thinking because the writers strike ended that maybe the SAG strike might end sooner than anticipated. And so we don't necessarily want to apply for the SAG interim agreement and agree to those terms before knowing what the final SAG terms that are agreed upon go forward. I don't even know if I'm making any sense, but I guess like, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Okay. It's like, we don't want to agree to something that's temporary for them and final for us so it's like why not see where sag actually lands and then um you know submit for that agreement so we're in kind of a holding pattern there i've been writing up i wrote up a first draft of my character descriptions i had a third production company reach out about the film so like we're still moving forward but i'm certainly look at you third production company dear god but i'm not writing (laughs) like my brain is not in any way a place like for me to be creative, I have to be exercising, eating right. Like, there's a lot of things that have to but be. The, but the mind. movie is is it's written, isn't it? It's like all done. Yeah, it is. But it's like so we got notes from one of the production companies that we're talking to, and then mm. I'm meeting with Amy Thursday of this week. So in two days to start to open the script and make it better based off of those notes. So we are going to have to start writing soon, which is really intimidating. Like, um, I'm just hoping that my my brain works enough to contribute to a conversation about a script. It feels like your brain's working pretty good if you could do all those other things. You no, because that's, <laughs> that's all like soulless stuff. It's all like, <laughs> it's bureaucracy. You know, it's like, let me push these buttons to make the project keep going it's not getting it's not fixing the actual material that everything is based off of yeah well that's very exciting you know i feel like you have lots of momentum and i mean i feel like the this the sag strike should end soon but i don't really know anything but it just seems to me that like if the writers are they if they can make the writers happy i feel like they they're going to be able to make the actors happy right like i I can't imagine that the Actors are demanding more than than what the writers were demanding, you know, to, to them. But but maybe I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know how this works, but I feel like, yeah, if the writers are back to work, that the actors should sh- shortly also return to work. Well, and it's more in their interest for that to happen, too, because they have all these projects that were in the middle of shooting that they, they shut down. So it's probably better for the this producers for them to get the, the actors going first, I would think. You well, know. I, I picketed yesterday at Disney 
And the energy was just as palpable as it was before birth, right? Like it wasn't like mm. it was waned. Like everyone was still incredibly committed. There were so many writers and directors and producers in solidarity with the actors there. There was like a lot of free food also, which was Ooh. fantastic. But I'm just like, I don't feel like there's any decrease in momentum or energy from the unions and that they've been definitely buoyed by, nice. this, by the WGA win. Yeah, they should be. That's awesome. And well, hopefully the producers guilds or whoever, AMTPA, whatever their name is, hopefully they get their shit together and they just sign a deal so we can all get to watch Deadpool 3 hopefully <laughs> next year or the year after sure. as soon as possible. That's all I care about. I want my Deadpool 3. But yeah, you know, the other thing that's really important to do is to support us on Patreon. That's the way the show keeps moving forward, that it stays alive, where it still will have breath. Well, where like, you know, Liz and I won't decide to quit because it's just too hard to do everything in life with two kids and trying to make movies and a job and a podcast, which is like how I felt like, you know, three or four weeks ago. I was like, how is this split gonna continue? But now I'm like, ah, it's okay. We can make it happen. But the more support on Patreon, the more likely it'll continue. But yeah, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. You can check us out there. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Anthony DeBlasi. We're here with Anthony DeBlasi, filmmaker extraordinaire. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Give us your elevator pitch for Amala. Well, so it, Malum starts with it's a remake. It's a remake of a movie I already made called Last Shift in 2014, uh, which was a, in itself almost the elevator pitch. But, you know, essentially it's it's about a rookie female police officer who is trying to uncover the mystery, uncover the mysteries of her father's death. So she becomes a cop and she's in a decommissioned police station on its last night where she's alone and she's there to find out the mysteries of her father's mysterious death. And, and unbeknownst to her, there's a haunting going on of, of this vicious cult called the flock of the low God and, you know, hijinks ensues. <laughs> it does sound like a little hijinks in there. Uh, and how many, how many days roughly did you all shoot? We shot total. We did a, a pickup day. It was about 23 days. And we shot in Kentucky. We shot a day in Los Angeles for effects, but it was mainly all in Kentucky. And what was the rough budget budget of the film, if you can say? Budget was 1.2. It was an interesting approach because the company, Welcome Villain, it, it was their first film and they were doing it in a different way where they were going to self-distribute. The guys had come from marketing both. They were originally at Blumhouse and then they were at Orion Pictures. And they had a plan for it. So it was a $2 million budget with a 1.2 production budget. And then they spent the rest on marketing and distribution. Um, and now you were the co-writer on this. Yes. But now I, I'm curious, where did the idea come from? How did you guys stumble upon this? You you'd said it was a remake. So where what was the, the seed of the whole thing? Well, back in 2014, my my he was Scott Poiley. We had he had produced two movies that I had directed one called Casadega and one called Missionary. And he was based in Florida. And I, I went out there, got to know them well, you know, and we made, and they were, you know, around that one and a half million, both of those films. And, and in the indie world, that's a big number to kind of recoup quickly and stuff. So we 
after that, I said, and one was a supernatural thriller. One was uh, kind of like a fatal attraction thriller. And I hadn't really done what I considered a true horror film. I had made Clive Barker's Dread, which again was like a psychological thriller. And and I wanted to make a movie that was just scary. It just was meant to be like, sit down, thrill ride, just scare the hell out of people for 90 minutes. And I kind of pitched him this idea on Last Shift about heavily about sound design because I had gotten to know that sound team very well in Florida and thought that they could do a lot. And it turned into, because of the sound element, it was like, well, what if it's a dispatcher alone at a police station? And then it kind of morphed into talking about, we found this abandoned police station. We're like, okay, we're going to shoot here. We hadn't written, we kind of had these ideas, we hadn't written anything yet. So then we started molding it into what became last shift. And I was like, well, the, the Manson family is scary, but it, it'd be scarier if they were ghosts. And what if they were <laughs> kind of haunting this police station? And and that's where the, the first one came from. It was just something. And then we sat down, we wrote together. And that was the first time we had written together. And we had kind of went on to write a few things after that. But last shift was the first. And we, we it was so methodical. We, we shot last shift for $150,000. And it was it was about being like, okay, how small can we go, but retain the quality of these other films? You know, we had the relationships there already and we were like, well, let's give out back end. Let's give out percentages so people feel invested in the movie because we were kind of retaining ownership. As he was like, I feel like I'm going to raise 150 with this core group of investors pretty easily and we would keep a, a bigger percentage of the, the pot. And and it ended up being my most successful movie at the time. You know, at the time it was just, it was scary. And when it was done, I think because we were so methodical about it, how it was planned and who the audience was for kind of a, like a midnight crowd mm-hmm. that it just landed and it, and Magnolia picked it up and, and they distributed it and, it and it did well and it continues to do well. And now like when Welcome Villain came around, and this is the long answer probably, probably, but, but I guess because there's a history to it. We, we love long answers on the podcast. Yeah. When I was introduced to Luke LeBeau and he was like, I'm starting this company called Welcome Villain. I was like, that's a really cool title for a company. And they're like, we're really big fans of Last Shift. You know, we know you did that movie for a small budget. And it it got an audience. It became kind of a cult movie. And it, you know, Magnolia gave it a push, but they could have pushed it harder. You know, they could they could have maybe done a limited theatrical with it. It was it was a movie that was reviewed very well and audiences really liked. And these guys at Welcome Villain felt like we can reinvigorate the franchise and do, we called it a reimagining of the movie because it's Mm -hmm. it's it's the same but much different at the same time so that's how we got on the path to malum you kind of answered it a little bit in that last answer but how long did you spend working on the film from like coming up to the idea to its release so i guess maybe just since this was a remake we just talk about from when welcome villain approached you until you know the release of this movie it wasn't that long it was probably about a year and a half i i had talked to luke it was around halloween and you know at that time he was like we're in the early stages but we're pretty confident the money's going to come together for our company and 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 i had been around the block enough to know when people i can usually sniff out like something that's real and i'm like i felt confident that he was going to that this deal was going to come together so i talked to scott I'm like, listen, why don't we start working now? Start throwing ideas together. 
So we started around that, you know, October, November time. And that was by the following summer, the deals were getting done. Mm -hmm. So it was about, it was about a year and a half total when from, from conception to release. So it wasn't that long at all. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, that is a really quick turnaround. I, I am curious, you know, looking at your IMDb and familiar with some of your work, you you start off as a producer, or at least you you had a, a lot of your earlier credits are in producing. Start producer, executive producer, moving on. And then you, we start seeing like, you know, you're directing shorts and things like that. What was the path from director to producer? Did you start off directing and then you kind of got sidetracked like, or you wanted to learn about it or was it just all producing? And then you're like, hey, I'm going to give this directing thing a shot. I mean, I always wanted to direct and I went to film school in Boston. I'm from Boston. I went to Emerson and I mainly went to Emerson because they had that this LA program. And I was like, well, that's great. Like that's a great in. So from my last semester of my senior year, I did the LA program and, and I just moved to Los Angeles. And when you're there, you have to get an internship. So, or they send you home. So you do the whole, like, you know, you have an advisor and she helps you out, like make some connections and, and things like that. I, w- I got an internship with Marvel Studios Wow. This was, I mean, it was kind of crazy because it was, they were not doing anything. Like it was <laughs> right before the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man came out. Oh, and, wow. Like that was the buzz. In the, and it was still, it was Avi and it was his son, Ari, and it was Kevin all in the same office. And they, and, and Avi and Ari kind of went on and did the universal stuff. And then Kevin, you know, broke off and did obviously what became Marvel, but at the time, I only was taking one class because I had enough credits and I was doing the Marvel internship. And I was like, I don't think this is going to turn into a job because there wasn't much going on. You know, I was like making photocopies of like these Marvel packets of like, this is who Doctor Strange is. So they could send it out <laughs> to actors and, and executives. And and I remember like the day they brought in the Spider-Man credits and they were like, here, come watch the credit sequence at the beginning. And that was, but I didn't see any footage from the movie or anything like that. So it was a very low key office. When I went back to my advisor, I loved horror and I loved practical effects. You know, I, I kind of dabbled in effects myself and, and in college did some practical effects, practical makeup effects. And I talked to her about, you know, who are the names in horror that like we could find connections to. And it was you know, John Carpenter, Wes Craven and Clyde Barker. And <laughs> did Sam Raimi come up just because you were at, you just you had Spider-Man coming out? It was was his name popping up at all? Yeah, people I, dead? They, all the all the usual suspects of that crowd. And I actually got to know Sam's young executive quite well. His name was Cody's wide, who's still working. And, and we were about the same age and we saw each other a lot in those days. But I ended up getting an internship with Clive. And that process was only Joe Daly, who was one of his executives, he had gone to Emerson for just a semester. He was from the East Coast. He was from Massachusetts. And then he transferred to New York to NYU. But that was enough for me to be like, hey, I'm from Mass. You know, we're Mass holes. I went to Emerson. (laughs) I hounded him on the phone. You know, they, they got me his contact info. I hounded him for a few weeks. And eventually he was like, yeah, you know, we're kind of ramping up here. We're doing this sci-fi movie. Why don't you come down and we'll take a meeting? So he invites me to the meeting and then Clive's there. It was at Clive, it was at the, at his house. And I didn't, I didn't think I was going to meet Clive either. So it was kind of like I was thrown into the fire. 
And I ended up getting an internship with them. And then they were getting so busy and I just kind of really put a lot of time and effort there. They hired me before I graduated. And then that was that. I, so that path started as I got this gig with Clive and I was thrown into the fire there. I was an, an assistant, but they were, Clive had just done this deal again, long answer, but, but go for maybe, it, go for it. Clive had just done this deal for a children's book that he had written called Abra. Excuse me. He had not written it yet. He had painted a bunch of paintings for it. And he had this house that was just covered in these massive oil paintings, very whimsical, fantastical, much like it was it was like his Narnia. He had his agent. He was with ICM at the time. They sold that project to Disney for a big it was a big deal. But Clive Barker is he's the Hellraiser guy, right? He's the Candyman. (laughs) And now he's the Disney guy. So there was this huge influx of meetings and and projects. And we were we started to set up his short stories and his novellas like everywhere. It got very busy around town. We had a project at Warner Brothers Universal, Sony, Disney, Walden, you know. So I'm taking all these meetings at the studios and I'm like learning just how to be an executive very quickly and meeting people I have no business meeting because because Clive is, you know, there he's meeting with the heads of the, the studio and stuff. So it was a crazy learning curve. And that went on for a while, but we weren't getting a lot of things made because they were like, oh, you did this big Disney deal. And then we're like, hey, here's this project called the Damnation Game. And it's a it's Clive's first horror novel and Clive stuff is dark. Clive stuff is like Hellraiser. It's, it's very specific. It's very dark. And a lot of the studios were like, this is, it's almost like they hadn't read it. <laughs> they just bought it, <laughs> but they hadn't read anything. And we kind of got sucked into this development hell process for many years. But all the time, all the while I wanted to direct, I wanted to be a director. And so when the time finally, we got, we got this movie called Midnight Meat Train greenlit. And then we got this movie called Book of Blood greenlit. Everyone knew I wanted to direct. And I was like, hey, I want to direct Dread. And I wrote a script for it. I started writing a script for it and a, and a treatment for it. And the team was like, great. Cause they, cause they knew I had the same insights as Clive. Like we were on, I had consumed so much of his work and they trusted how I wrote that they were all on board. So they kind of were behind that happening. And I, I didn't really get a lot of pushback during that time. And I, I directed dread around 2008 and that was back into directing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, cause you're working at Clive Barker's company, you're like an assistant and then you suddenly you get to you get an executive producer credit on Midnight Meat Train and you know what's the other one? We did Book a movie of, called The Plague, yeah, and and Book of Blood, and we had a lot of movies in development around town, but yeah. Yeah. So is that just because you were working on those movies in a certain way that they just, you got that credit or like what, what allowed you to, to kind of jump from just being an assistant to like all of a sudden an executive producer? Well, it was because of how busy we were the, I mean, I kind of manif I kind of just made it happen. I, I think with Joe, Joe needed the, the help and he was taking me to these meetings and Joe wasn't really a horror guy. He, he met Clive on Lord of Illusions. Joe was in Lord of Illusions. 
and they got along really well. And he's, and, and Joe is an amazing people person and he is an amazing executive. And, but horror wasn't like, he didn't have this deep passion for horror. He obviously knew Clive's work very well. I, on the other hand, I was younger, you know, and I was kind of at the, I knew like every, I was watching everything that was coming out. I knew horror very well. I grew up on horror and I could kind of speak that language with Clive. And in the meetings, it was just like, I was developing, I was there when we were hiring writers. I was developing a lot with the writers. We had picked up this project called The Plague and I was the main point person because the director just really trusted me. And and it was just by by that, by interacting in the, being an, being an executive, no longer an assistant because it just wasn't time to be an assistant anymore. But I was still assisting Clive with the stuff that he needed. And that was still part of it. And either, you know, and either that was helping him with his novel stuff to a certain extent or, you know, going to the comic store with him. I was still doing that stuff at the time. And we'd go to the comic store every Wednesday or like if he had errands to run, he'd be like, Anthony, let's go run an errand. <laughs> and by the time this kind of development hell phase, when we had projects set up in the contracts I had producing, you know, and honestly, the only reason, like with Midnight Me Train, Joe and I were, we developed that movie and we brought it to this, you know, we, Joe brought the writer on, we developed that movie, we sold it to Lakeshore and Lionsgate. For all intents and purposes, we were the producers on that film. We didn't take producer credits because we were the low men on the totem pole, like the, mm. with the executives at Lakeshore and the executives at Lionsgate and then Clive, you know, it, it, there's only so many producer credits, but we were very involved with the development and then making of that movie. And then we went overseas to Scotland and, and shot Book of Blood there. We had another producing partner on these movies named Jorge Saralegui, who had come from Fox, and he was also a producer on on, on dread as well. So that was, it was just me being thrown into that fire, right place at the right time, but also taking the initiative to get to know the writers and get to know the directors we were hiring, bringing in directors to our company, you know, like having them pitch projects and, and trust trying to build up as many Clive pro project projects as we could around town. So it felt like a long process at the time, but it, for us to get Midnight Me Train made, but looking back, you know, it, it wasn't. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like five years yeah, like, and, and that that's pretty typical for, for a film, I feel like, that, like, you know, yeah. five to eight years, you hear some of, like, oh, like, they're 10 years or something like that, so, so good on you. And actually, uh, and along that line, too, getting back to Malum, so with this, you talked a little bit about the production company that, you know, that they were starting. Was this the kind of dream scenario where you just walked in? They're like, great, how much do you need? And then they write you a check. Or is it like, are we finding financing from a few different places? How, how did how did the money all come together? They had put the money together on their own. So by the time mm -hmm. that we like did the, con we didn't start the contract until, until they knew they were ready to go. So we had been kind of soft developing with them. You know, we I would share the treatment with them and and kind of our process but we didn't really want to start writing writing the script until we knew it was more real so the second that was more solidified we jumped into the script and they did the deal but we were done with the script before like we had signed you know it, the process of doing the deal took longer than it took for us to finish the script so mm. and but we knew the money we knew that it was going to be 2 million that was there you know and we knew 1.2 was allocated to production so we wrote the script with that in mind yeah so when you get to the point of directing dread 
Like, I know you've been at the company for a long time at that point. You kind of had a deep relationship with them, but you know, this is your very first movie. Like you haven't really directed anything else before. Like what kind of process did you have to go to convince them to give you that shot? Or was it more like they just knew you, they trusted you and they said, Hey, this guy's got it. Like let's give him the shot to direct his first feature. Yeah. They knew me enough because we had been on set together. And so they, they trusted me enough to go. I don't remember there being a very, I don't remember a gauntlet, if you will. It, it, was, <laughs> it was pretty, we just had all, all of us had a close relationship. And I think because we had gone through much, through so much development, hell with other writers, directors, studios, Clive really liked the idea of keeping it in house that, yeah. that it, it's like, okay, so it's the four of us and we're going to make this movie, you know, we're the team here. And then the producers, they'll be on the outside, the, the, you know, the, the company, the outside to a certain extent, you know, so it felt like that we, it, with our numbers, we could kind of make the movie we wanted to make and try to keep as much control as possible. So so I think that's another reason why, you know, and, and certainly, you know, Joe didn't want to direct. Joe wanted to produce. Like Joe didn't have yeah. aspects of being a director. I was the only one in the company and Clive also didn't either. He was writing all the time and he didn't, he was really wasn't at the point in his career where he wanted, because again, he had a hard time on Nightbreed and Lord mm-hmm. of Illusions and he wasn't eager to like get behind the director's chair again. So, so that was really why. So yeah, it, it sounded like, like, look, instead of bringing in somebody else, we don't know and we're going to be working on this project for potentially the next five years let's just keep it in the family and like you know anthony's good and he wants to do it so let's let's give him a shot and before we gloss over it dude shout out lord of illusions i love that movie i saw it three (laughs) times in the theater scott bakula if you are listening love you man that that should have been that should have been a trilogy at least i know i know i love that movie um but i want to ask you so now clearly like that's how you got started but i mean you've made what nine features in 14 years so that's an amazing track record so it sounded like it maybe took a little while to get a foothold but like once you got one you were up the mountain like so how did how did that continue how did you manage to to get all of those dominoes to fall i you know i don't i guess it's just you know and listen some are good movies and some you know it's all a (laughs) product of like every movie is different and you know you all always have the best intentions and and some some movies are more jobs than other movies but i think it was a when i met the guys in florida and casadega was my second feature but i was a i was developing a lot we had some studio stuff I had written a project, well, Damnation Game, I had taken over as writer and I had written a project for, I had written a draft for Warner Brothers and Phoenix Pictures, which was Mike Metavoy's company. And Brad Fisher was the executive on that. He just did uh, Last Voyage of the Demeter. Mm. But Anton Fuqua was attached to that movie and I was doing development with him. So I was writing more and I didn't jump right back into directing. Again, when you're younger, it's like time is slower and it feels like everything feels like it takes a long time. And then you look back and you're like, I don't know how I did those things during that amount of time because it felt like forever. <laughs> but the guys in Florida, they were in LA and they had seen Dread and they were looking for a director on this movie. So I took a meeting with them and they I was at APA and I, I'm still at, well, APA is now IAG. They, I, they, I, yeah. 
they're no, the company formerly known as APA. <laughs> so I jumped onto that project in Florida. And it was interesting because those guys had kind of tapped into their own equity in Florida. So I was able to kind of do one movie with them. And they were like, let's do another one because they really enjoyed the process. And we started one right away. It's weird because in some ways I took myself out of the studio system a little bit because I was so... I had such a skewed view of filmmaking because I had started in the studio system and we never looked at festivals like festivals were not on our radar. It wasn't like, hey, let's look to Sundance to hire the next director or let's that's that was so not in our world. So jumping into directing, it was almost like I hit the reset button on my career a bit because it was like, okay, now I'm directing and you're 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 those you're leaving one life behind. You're starting in another. And, And I did a few projects that were indie projects. You know, they weren't at studios. So. I was kind of now in this indie world. And now now after these years I'm 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 more have more of a foothold back in the studio system, but it took a while to get there. And I think I think it was just taking it was just working. I mean, I guess it was one one job begets the next. And and I had enough and I think also me still developing stuff with Clive that gave me some clout and things like that to be like, okay, someone's doing a horror project. Let's go after him. And and it just allowed me to to direct. And then between so did, Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so did you so you you uh, clearly like, you know, you were Clive's guy, everyone trusted that. Were you as a result of you doing those early projects with him, were you just meeting other people and other production companies and those people were like, hey, would you mind taking a look at our slate? And, you know, like we've got other things coming up. So it's like so it wasn't just the one production company. It sounded like, you know, your name was able to ring throughout all of these. And there was you were kind of you were making waves. You're making a name for yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, there was, you know, and there's also you're developing things that never get made. Sure. Right. So on the, In the background, you're de- you're developing 20 things that don't ever yeah. take off. So, yeah, it's a lot of meetings and it's a and I had enough of a foothold with people I knew and with the movies I was doing. I think Dread Dread didn't get some massive release, but it it was a big enough release that and we we won the Spike Scream Awards that year for best like best indie feature cuz we shot Dread in the UK, which was a, a, a different kind of experience. So, it was almost it was like a studio movie, but with studios in the UK, mm-hmm. and and then Lionsgate just released it in the states. So Dread had gotten enough attention where I could continue to like just make movie after movie. And sometimes I think discretion wise, maybe I was like maybe I shouldn't have said yes to that one or yes to that one. But <laughs> I, it, it was a when you start your career in so much development hell, there's a pleasure into just making movies regardless of the budget size. Cause, cause I gotta be honest, like I, I haven't made a $50 million movie, but midnight me train was in the, you know, in the twenties and after Mark, you know, it was in the zone of the 20 to $30 million movie. And it didn't feel much different than making <laughs> a $2 million movie. It, it all had the same bones. It all had the same issues. And as long as you could be like, okay, I feel like I can make, I always strived to make a movie where people couldn't tell what the budget was. They weren't instinctually saying, well, you know, with last shift, especially making a movie that was so small. And for a lot of years, I, we never told people what that budget was because, because no one believed we made that movie for such small money. So yeah, that was a thing too, because once my agent started telling people he made last shift for $150,000, people took notice of that. And they were like, Oh wow. Okay. So what can he do with this budget? And that, 
had kind of a life of its own as well for a while. So did, did the reps just come directly out of dread? Was that like you made dread and then you immediately had management and then were they kind of integral in you getting your next directing job or was that kind of later after you'd done two or three features? It was actually before dread because I had, because I wanted to write and, and direct, I had taken one of Clive's books that he had a hard time. Like it had been around the block. It's called the thief of always. It was a young adult novella and, and it was at Universal. This was before me. It was at Universal for a lot of years. It almost got made as a Sondheim musical. It was a. It was an excellent. Wow. Book. Yeah, it was like it, I, I loved Clive Barker and Sondheim. I, I would have never put those two together. Well, you'd be surprised to know that Sondheim <laughs> is probably like Clive's favorite musician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that was like that was kind of a heartbreak for him that that never got made. But that book was so great that I was like, you know, I'm just going to adapt the book like word for word, essentially. I just I just took the book and I turned it into a screenplay because I'm like, I don't see why one couldn't just turn this book into a screenplay. You know, I made adjustments where I had to. But for the most part, I was I was just transcribing his book into a screenplay and, uh, and editing where I needed to. And it was a 120 page script. And I showed it to him. I'm like, listen, I, I adapted this. Give it a read. And he was like, oh, wow, you turned my like, this is great. He's like, if you ever want to adapt anything else of mine, do it. So had, not- had he asked you to adapt it or did you just do that on your spare time? No, I just did that on my spare time. And I didn't. OK, I, didn't, I told Joe that I was doing it, but I hadn't told Clive I was doing it. So this is all on spec. It was all on spec. Yeah. I also hadn't like in college, I had written like I had never written what I would call a feature. You know, it Mm -hmm. it, it always felt like daunting. You know, when I was like 22, probably like 22, you're like you have lots of ideas and you write like half form screenplays and you take the screenwriting courses in college and. And I had never like really busted out a 120 page screenplay to that, that extent. And that was Thief of Always was like, oh, it's not as hard as I thought it was. It, of course, I'm adapting his book, but it was like doing it is empowering. I always tell that to like if a young screenwriter comes to me, they're like, I'm really having a hard time kind of busting out the pages. And I, and I was like, do what I did. Just take a book and turn it into a screenplay. Mm. And once you do it, you're like, oh, okay, that wasn't as daunting as I felt it was going to be. So I adapted a, a short story that I really loved of his. His was called Pig Blood Blues. And I and that was a horror, a very kind of dark horror story. And I adapted that into a screenplay. Clive was repped at ICM at the time, and he shared that script with ICM. And they really liked it and signed me with his agent. And that was a, a bit of a catch-22. I started writing other things. But, you know, it's like, well, this is Clive's agent. And I'm kind of like, you know, there was I, I never felt like like he was really my agent to a certain extent. So we had met with agents at APA, Cheryl Peterson, who's still my agent today. A couple of years later, Joe was like, you got to meet these two girls, Debbie Dubel and Cheryl Peterson at APA. We were trying to do some projects with them. And I got along with Cheryl really well. And she had read Pig Blood Blues and loved it and tried to do something with it. And then, so then I was, they, I signed up with, with them at APA and that was all pre-Dread. And, and then it was shortly after that is when I said, Cheryl, I'm adapting Dread. And, and then that kind of. It was probably within a two-year span that I had signed with APA and then did did Dread. Wow. Yeah. And then the other part of the question was like, like once you signed with them and like after Dread, like like what what percentage of the of 
like, you know, how, how much were they responsible for you getting your second feature? Was it like your reps were a big part of getting Casadega or was it kind of through your other relationships that that second opportunity came apart, came about? It was a completely cold reach out because these guys had watched Dread. They saw it in the theater oh, nice. and they just called Cheryl. They called APA. So it was something that just wasn't on like anybody's radar at the time. Nice. And this, so that it was it. So it's kind of like, and I feel like that's when you have a movie out, right? Your agents can really push a lot. Or if you have that new spec script or you, you know, you kind of, you generate that, that buzz in a way that, okay, you can really push something for a year or so. You take all the generals again, you meet the new executives, you, you kind of put yourself out there and then it's, you know, it's up to me to, to, to make those relationships stick. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm never good at like forcing something, you know, if I meet an executive and it's not like, if I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'm not going to force this, then I'll, I'll tend to let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you meet executives that you really click with, then it becomes easy and you kind of like, okay, well, it'd be great to do something together. It'd be great to a producer and executive great to make a movie together and yeah. kind of stick with those relationships. I wanted to ask now horror fans, I feel like are so unique because they are so ravenous when it comes to the genre, like horror fans are just all in on horror. Like that is their life. Yeah. Man. And it's, that's why I, I think for a lot of young filmmakers are often directed towards horror. It's just like, Hey, listen, like <laughs> if you want to get people, you want to get eyes on a project, uh, horror people love horror and they love good horror and they seem to be so devoted and they just, love that community so there's that which is great but when it comes time to putting money together for a project are you still looking for big names in order to get that budget together or is it that your track record along with clive or whomever the executive happens to be that you're working with is that enough or do you have to go for like look if if we don't get a large name in here then we're just going to be we're going to be shooting in poughkeepsie instead of uh, new york I think it depends on the size, right? It's all about yeah. the budget and the 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 budget you're striving for. Because if you're if you're aiming for five million and up, then yeah, right, you're gonna have to get a name. You're gonna have to get some kind of name on the project. But horror has always been sold on the basis of the fan base and just the fact that it's you can release a horror movie without with no names and it can be a huge success. And that's just horror. And I and that's the I think that's the only genre that really can always be like because horror fans it's almost like the dirtier and grungier it is it makes it more taboo it's like you can have scream or you can have the texas chainsaw massacre and and horror audiences don't care if it was shot on a vhs camera or a crap you know a, a crappy found footage iphone movie as long as it scares them or affects them in some way and I, and growing up, I felt the same way. I mean, to the sense like I would watch the crappiest horror movie just for the experience. And there was always something I could take from it and be like, well, yeah, but that part was really cool or that part was really successful and how the filmmakers pulled that off. And I, I just, you know, I think it's that fan base. They're so passionate about me included, you know, that's so passionate about watching a lot of content and, and just looking for that high, almost right. That buzz, that thing that's going to scare the most diehard horror fan yeah, or gross them out, you know, something like that. <laughs> so, so you don't really have to really be involved in raising the money for your movies, right? Like you kind of just get hired on to a project through a company and they kind of handle 
doing the fundraising and you're just there as the creative lead and to direct the movie and all that, that good stuff. Yeah. It's funny right now because my wife and I write together. She's an actress who's she's in Malum, Natalie Victoria. We write together and I, I like to write within the studio system. So usually when I'm writing, I'm not writing horror. I'm writing other things that I enjoy, either a big sci-fi thing, or uh, I wrote a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the spotless mind that got me a lot of attention. So so behind the scenes, when I'm not directing, I'm usually within the last like decade and Natalie and I have been writing for the last few years together, I'm, I'm writing and I'm developing and I'm, you know, again, things that might not get made, but that's where a lot of my time is going. So when I, the last movie I did before Extremity, I did a movie called Extremity in 2018. I took four years off just to, I was writing because I wanted to focus on writing. And then and Malum kind of just fell in my lap. So I think at this point, either I'm going to be trying to direct something that's a studio picture, or I'm going to be writing for studios, you know, or putting my time on either specs, doing things that I'm passionate about, or taking writing gigs and things like that, pitching, mm-hmm. pitching, writing prop gig stuff. Because I like writing, I like writing and editing just as much as I like directing. Yeah. Oh, ed- editing as well. Oh, oh okay. I edited Malum too. I've edited several of my features. So when, when you talk about the four years for writing, was that just specs or are you writing things that you're getting hired to write, you know, on studio projects like assignments and stuff? And then what what kind of if you're talking about, like writing for a studio feature and then that being the next thing you direct, like what kind of like, how is that going to play out? And like, would that be like a much bigger budget movie, like a 20 million, 30 million thing? And is that the kind of thing that you have to like try to get like a, a universal pictures to buy in, in on to like get you to, to, to get it to green light or what is yeah. There's the like the you know the mini majors and then there's the, like and then so during that time yes it would be both it would be both either maybe I'd pitch a project maybe I'd pitch so during that time I would pitch a project that I was planning to direct but it just never got made so I you know I I'd, I'd get hired to write the script and it just never got to that next phase or mm. or I'm writing specs so it's a combination of you know pay the bills with with pitching and and writing assignments and then also specking out things that are out side of the horror genre or right now Natalie and I are putting more of our focus post Malum more of our focus on now that the strike's over right we're going to start pitching Yay. yeah exactly right <laughs> hopefully hopefully nothing goes wrong and then potentially over <laughs> what could um, possibly go wrong Anthony possibly go wrong we'll start pitching like off of the heat of Malum we'll start pitching horror projects that we've like kind of been developing and and we'd be pushing, pitching like studios. So and and again, it, studios projects have there's always that you know someone can make a studio movie and be like, oh my god, I need to make an indie movie. You know, it's like there's the back and forth of mm-hmm. there's one always, for them, one for you. Yeah, well, there's also something very fulfilling about making an indie movie because it's a if it's it's different experience mm-hmm. and you feel like you have a lot more control and and you know you're gonna get the movie made and released and things like that. But I think right now we're putting our focus on on studio stuff. I am curious because you're talking about, you know, the difference between writing, directing, you know, a writing game could be a couple of weeks. It could be a couple of months, you know, 
Whereas directing, that is your life for the next, yeah. you know, however many years. Yeah. So what is it ultimately that you're finding where you say yes to a directing project? I think it, well, it comes down to the script and either if it's something that, or, and also my, maybe my mood, you know, cause if I'm, if I've been writing for a while and I get a script that I like and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to get, you know, and also, also I think keeping the, keeping the knife sharp, you sure. know, you, right. It, it, you don't, I, I never want to take too far a break from directing because I just want to keep that tool, you know, keep, make sure I, I love working with actors and that's, I, I've always been very collaborative with actors. My first experience with dread, even going back to the play when I was an EP with a producer on that project, I really got to work with the actors a lot. And I did some second unit stuff on that movie. And I, and it was, I was like, okay, I really like working with actors and that, and I felt like actors liked to work with me too. I felt like I had a language with them that they enjoyed the process. And so when I, so when you're writing, right, I'm not working with actors. So I, anytime I can be like, okay, this script is really good. I feel like this is different than something I've done before. And either is it speaking to me visually or is it speak to me creatively? Or it's like, oh, I feel like I could really cast this with some great actors. That's usually what draws me in. So I sure, I'm sure you know, in a, if I'm not directing something soon, if I'm just really focusing on writing over the next few years, I'm sure I'll get that, like, call my agent and be like, hey, let's look for a directing gig and see if we can find something. Yeah. I'm eager to direct again. Nice. Uh, well, we, we need to get into our final question soon because it's all, I can't believe it's already been an, almost an hour. But yeah, I have one last question. We ask these <laughs> questions. I have these long-winded answers. No, they're great. They're, <laughs> they're beautiful. Great. They're great answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of our listeners, and myself included, are, are filmmakers who have maybe made one feature or or two features or no features, but they're, they're basically trying to you know, figure out how to get their next movie made, you know, and we don't have any agents or managers. The distribution we've had for our features has been, you know, minimal, you know, like not, not through a huge, you know, company or anything. It's like they mostly live on iTunes or Amazon or, you know, not even on, on one of the streamers, just like on, you know, the, the lower level TVOD and AVOD type situations. What are your advice for us to get our next movies made? Like, should we just be going out, raising our own money, making our own features and just doing it over and over and over again until, you know, we get something that kind of breaks through or is there like another process? Like, should we be focusing on trying to get agents and managers? Like, like what, what is the, where should we be putting our energy uh, at this stage in our careers? Like in the kind of the early stages, the advice changes every year. <laughs> the advice changes every five years and right now. Cause even I'm taking my own advice, like right now, I think the best thing to do is, is make a short. And, and this was, this was also mid two thousands. A lot of the people we were hiring for studio movies were coming off shorts. I, I think that's true again, short content. And it's funny because I love, let's say I love, I enjoy writing specs because I enjoy writing specs and I do more than pitching projects. I kind of want to just like vomit a movie out and say, this is, this is my movie than like trying to pitch someone because it's almost as much, it is as much work. Right now I'm finding, and my agency's finding, I think a lot of agencies are finding short content works better. Short stories on Reddit. This is where agents are looking right now. Yeah, and it's it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's no accident that today is also Wes Anderson released The Wonderful Life of Henry Sugar today. 
which is a short film, which yeah. uh, who gives that kind of excitement? Yeah. So I, to, to speak to your point, I think shorts are very much like a good idea. Now, sorry, sorry no, to interrupt. Go ahead. No, like, no, it's true. It's it's shorts. It's short stories. It's short scripts. You can hone these shorts. And if you're a writer, I'd say 100% join the competitions. Focus on the ones that look at who's on the board, right? Who's Who are the judges? Who's going to see your work? If you're an aspiring writer, I, I always say those things are not a waste of time. You should join those competitions, meet those people, right? And if you're a good enough writer, you will get attention. You know, if you can get in the top 10 or top 100, if you can get into those zones, you could make some good contacts. But if you can make a short, and horror is always a good way in, because mm -hmm. both for actors and filmmakers, horror shorts get attention. And 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 they studios are the mini majors and the majors, let's say more the mini majors and the producers, they're looking at shorts for filmmakers. So you get as much money as you can or rate, try to raise money on a Kickstarter or something and, and go that route. I think that is the best foot in right now hmm. better than just make making a hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollar horse feature that's like not as worthwhile you think i think that will get most people nowhere right now hmm. it's funny like and it really comes down to even myself i'm writing shorts because i've never made a lot of shorts i've made a couple of shorts but they weren't at the beginning of my career so short even right now i'm putting focus on shorts because i'll write a short like natalie and i will write a short i'll send it to my agent she's like oh i can send this to people right now i'm like wait what like i don't need to even make it or She's like, well, you can make it, but I can start sending it to people now. And I, I honestly think it comes down to the most basic thing. People don't have time to watch a movie. <laughs> like, like executives and, and producers, and they don't want to watch a feature. Like, like Malum's been getting me good generals, like, you know, for directing gigs and things like that. So you're so and and she's, you know, even she's like surprised, like, OK, well, that's good. I'm getting good responses. People are watching the movie or they're watching enough of the movie. But if you make a short, people are going to watch your movie. Hmm. And if you write a short story, people are going to read it because they have the time to give five to 10 minutes of something. Mm -hmm. And if it plays festivals, it's going to be seen by executives. It's going to be seen by producers, especially if it's getting into the higher tier festivals like Fantasia and Fantastic Fest and Fright Fest let, and things like that. Let me ask you a question just in regard to that. So let's say, you know, you've made your short, it's, it's doing the festival circuits. Is it okay for you then to just go ahead and start querying, you know, like Clive Barker's company or, you know, whomever the, the, the larger name happens to be but like, hey, look, I made this thing. You know, uh, is it cool if I send it to y'all? I say, why not? I mean, especially with social media existing and LinkedIn is I think people don't go to LinkedIn enough. Yeah. It's a professional resource to reach out to to people. And I think I think if people I think most filmmakers neglect LinkedIn and you'll more likely get a response there than you will anywhere else. Hmm, good so, one, good yeah. one. And I get it. Like a, unsolicited material is always going to be tricky, but a short it's like, well, you made it. It's a short why not watch it? You know, I think do everything you can to get it in front of people. Uh, but I've just, nice. 
a lot of producers are, are that's where they're getting their content and a lot of executives it's short form stuff well we've only got Ulrich for another few moments here so we got to go to our rapid fire six final six questions number one what is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now this could be something you made as a kid this could be like a high school project this could be whatever it happens to be we just what, what was it oh probably the first movie I used to make with my friends in middle school the movie was called Naked Man and it was about, <laughs> it was about a superhero that ran around in his tidy whities in a cape <laughs> and that was it we I did a lot of comedy in grade school wait a minute wait a minute yeah. did you did you make Captain Underpants? Is that what you made? I mean, I think we created Captain Underpants before he was a thing. Yes. Like this was like, this was like in the early, late 80s, right? early 90s. That's amazing. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I think it's to be humble, right? I mean, I, I always consider myself a humble filmmaker and working. If you can't get along with executives at a studio or producers, then I think you're going to have trouble in the business. Like, I think you have to, you have to listen to people's comments and take them graciously. Cause there are a lot of filmmakers out there that don't that, that they, they notes on their script or notes, notes on their vision. They, they take it as a slight on their ego. And Clyde was never like that. And I always learned that from him. I think, I think it's good to be humble. Hmm. What was, what's some of the worst filmmaking advice that you've ever gotten? <laughs> I don't surround myself with those people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. Sounds like keep toxic people out of your life. There's a, that may be, that may be it. it. I mean, it is. I mean, that, that's, I think that's good filmmaking advice. You know, I, I think I, I, well, I did have a funny story. I, I, um, I was, I'll keep it short, but I was, I was pitching this movie and I had come out of, you know, like a very creative camp. So, you know, when, when we were taking creative meetings with people, we weren't like showing up in a, like a tie and a, a suit or, you know, things like that. And I remember developing this project where I was meeting Gary Oldman's manager and it was with, with some young producers and, you know, and, and to, a, you know, I'd be wearing t-shirts and jeans and, you know, that's my look or like, that's my, you know, boots and whatever. I remember she was like, can you wear, I just want to make sure you wear like something nice to the meeting, like a button up shirt. I'm like, I'm like, I don't, I'm like, believe me. I'm like, I did. Cause you know, I, it was a manager. I was like, I wore, I was going to wear something nicer to that, but I'm like executives, they don't want you showing up in a suit and tie. If you're a writer, mm. they, they don't want you trying to be like them. Cause that gives them the wrong impression. They want creatives to be themselves. Now don't show up in a t-shirt with some naked girl on it, but, but you know, be, be yourself. <laughs> My my naked man fan T-shirt that I've made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I mean, I I like to do a lot of things, but I, I think you know, as as a filmmaker, I always wanted to make a movie with Universal Studios. There's always been a thing I've wanted to do, and I got close a couple of times. But it, it has always been a dream of mine to sit in a movie and have that Universal logo come up. <laughs> nice. That That is definitely a goal. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? It's it's tricky because I think you I think I'd say to be more selective with projects, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, and, and and again, you take certain movies for the for the for the job of it and you still have a you still do your best in and you you make the best movie you can. But there was, as someone who started in producing, but always wanted to be a filmmaker as a director and writer, there was that transitional period that is, you don't see it as like, oh, kind, you're kind of hitting the reset button on a lot of things. 
And I, I wouldn't say I would have changed it because it's like I, I am where I am. I don't think I've ever made like some massively bad decision in my career. But I think it's like you got to be selective if you can. You know, I may have gotten a side gig early on when I was filming. I never did. I always was like, no, I'm really going to put 100% in, into this. So maybe I would have taken a job if I had a side gig like doing commercials or, or, or content Then maybe I would have taken that job. Hmm. So I think it's important to have that outlet too. And last question, is making movies hard? Oh yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but it's very fulfilling if if you can make it with the right amount of people. But every movie is is Malum was the hard Malum was the hardest movie I made. And it was just a bunch of things that came into that factors. It was a blast to make. I loved every I loved everyone involved. The filmmaking experience was great, but the logistics behind that movie were very difficult. And that's a whole other podcast. I won't get into it, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Filmmaking is always hard. Well, Anthony de Blasi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, before we go, though, sell your wares. How do people support you? Where do they find your work? How do they help you get some of those goals that you just talked about? You can follow me on Instagram. I have a Twitter account, but I don't really go. Ant de Blasi on Instagram is where I update all my stuff. And, you know, I'll probably cancel Twitter again. I only I only got a Twitter account again <laughs> because I was promoting the movie. I just I just don't have the bandwidth for like too much social media. I like yeah. Instagram. <laughs> Find me there. Yeah. Awesome. This is amazing. Thanks so much for the time. And I got to shout out your predator statue in the background. That's so cool. Say, is that a predator bust in the background? Yeah, there? exactly. <laughs> yeah, yours, <laughs> yours is a little bit bigger than mine. Uh, oh, um, <laughs> thing, for people who can't see this, that is oh, what, a, probably a six foot tall I mean, complete replica holding uh, a, a skull with a, the spine attached it, to it. It's a one third scale. Nice. So it's like it's like four feet tall, three and a half feet tall. But it's it's my it's my prime possession right now. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I I got that. I found that Predator bust at like some random comic shop or something. They they had like a bunch of stuff in the basement that they hadn't sold, and they're like, "Oh, you like that thing? Check this out!" And they br brought out this Predator bust. They brought out like a Superman uh, statue, and I was like, "I'm." I'm buying this, I'm buying that. I'm hiding the good they, stuff in the basement. They had a Nostromo's uh, statue I didn't buy. It was like a oh, replica whoa. of the ship. And I was like, ah, I should have gotten that one too. Damn. There you go. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Eric, what do you remember about yours and Eric's chat with Anthony? Well, that like right in the middle of the, the conversation or in the very beginning, I noticed that he had what I looked like to be almost a full scale predator sca statue in his living room. Oh, my God. And I was like, OK, well, I have to unblur my image so he could see my predator bust <laughs> in the back. And then, of course, at the end, he, like I was like, is that a predator thing? And he was like, yeah, do you have one, too? And it was like we just sort of geeked out on our predator stuff but his is like it wasn't a full scale but it was like a one-third scale and with with a with a bloody spine and hand and everything it was <laughs> mwah, amazing <laughs> 
But yeah, besides that, no, it was just a fantastic conversation. But basically, he took us through his whole career of how he got started as an intern working at Marvel. And then that led to a, an internship at Clive Barker's production company. And then basically being at Pl- Clive Barker for many, many years, he became like an executive producer of multiple features there. And then that led to his first directing job. And then once he got that first directing job, it was like off to the races. He's just full time director for the rest of his career and writing and the whole deal. Wow. Kind of incredible and amazing. But yeah, lots of, I mean, obviously not like smooth all the way, like lots of challenges here and there and like making like really low budget features in between like the the million dollar features and such, you know, like they made one. So it's a funny story, like the movie that he just released, Malum, is a remake of one of his earlier features, which was made for like $150,000. And so, and it was like super successful. And so then, you know, some production company like really loved that movie and reached out and like wanted to do a, a bigger budget, you know, version of that same thing. And so that was what Malum ended up wow. being. So it's just like kind of incredible <laughs> to have a guy who's made nine features and one of them was a remake, put on one of his orig- earlier of features. Of his own movie. Like, That's really I know. cool. That's cool. Wild, wild. But yeah, it was a really fun conversation. I, I think you're going to like it, Liz. when you get to listen to it but without any more delay it is time to play another round of the game i am so excited to do this we haven't played a round of the game in like months but this for people who don't know first time listeners this is a game that eric toms created where he poses an indie film quagmire a scenario a challenge that one of us has to answer on the spot. So I get the honor to, of reading the question this week. Liz is going to answer. She has not heard anything about this. She doesn't know what all what this is going to be. It's going to be completely live on the spot. I haven't actually even read the question yet. I'm going to read it live here too for the first time just for fun. But here we go. It's the night before you're set to meet with a big producer. Ooh, fun. This producer has a great track record for getting projects made. So if you impress them, there's a good chance your project will get a green light down the line. You have two projects you're really excited about and you're trying to decide which of them you're going to pitch. The first is a fairly mainstream rom-com, the likes of which this producer has made in the past, so it could be a great fit. However, the film you really want to make is a very personal art house drama that will no doubt appeal to a much smaller audience. The producer is very busy and only has one time, only has time for one pitch. Do you pitch the more mainstream idea, confident that it'll be a bigger hit and may garner you favor with this producer? B, pitch the art house drama, knowing full well that the small audience may work against you. C, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Oh, this is hard. This is a really hard one. I mean, of course, I'm going to take issue because I take issue with everything that that happens in the game. But saying that something is a small audience is absurd. Everything could have a massive audience. You don't (laughs) saying it is a small audience just means you have a small marketing budget. That's how I feel. So that art house drama, I I would wouldn't want to have too much low self-esteem about it. <laughs> My uh, the thing is, you have to look at the professional history of the teammates that you're talking to, and if this producer's specialty is studio rom coms or traditional rom coms, and they say to you, "I'm looking for something of the type," you know, then you would want to pitch 
the rom-com. I guess my, what I would do is say, what are you looking for first? You ask the producer what they're looking for, and that informs which project you pitch. I would like to think that I would pitch the art house drama that I cared so much about, but ultimately I think I probably would pitch the rom-com because I'd be anticipating catering to the audience of the pitch. And, and it sounds like the producer is more apt to listen and be excited by something more traditional. What would you do? Yeah, I think all the things that you said, I totally agree with. I If, if their track record included art house dramas that were super right. successful, then maybe I would like be a little bit more encouraged to... Uh, pitch that project especially if I was really passionate about it and I thought that like this could really impress them but if they don't do any art house dramas it's like not anything they do at all and they've only really done like big rom-coms or other things that aren't the idea I'm really excited about yeah. I would not go with that idea because it's you're just gonna get it's it's like a it's like I don't know I've like learned from experience of doing things like this that like don't pitch you know an apple pie to somebody who wants a banana pie yes like they're never gonna go with apple pie they because they want to dance, they ask for a banana pie, give them the banana pie, you yeah. know? So, like, I think that I would totally pitch the more mainstream audience rom com that fits with their line of filmmaking for sure. I'm. I'm doubling down on that, too, because I was just thinking of another reason, because I can see I can anticipate a scenario where you pitch the art house drama and the producer's like, do you even know anything about me? Have you looked at my resume? Have you looked? You know, it's like it could really blow back. Yeah. And I think also like you you have to think of a in the sorry to speaking generally, you have to think of a pitch as not how do I get my project made, but like how do I talk to this specific person? So if you're pitching. If you're choosing the art house drama, it's because you want to make that movie more. But you can't think of a producer as someone who's just going to get your project made. Right. You have to think of a producer as a teammate to collaborate with on a specific project. It's like yeah. I have had so many people and I'm sure they've come. Actually, I know they've come to you a lot because you've talked about it on the podcast, but they come to us and they say things like, I have all these questions about financing. I have all these questions about making my first movie. And it's like, no one's going to say, no one's just going to go to you and be like, I'm going to make your movie happen because you care so much yeah. about your movie, right? It has to be something that they're excited about as well. So yeah, doubling down. And plus, I love rom-coms. I want to make another rom-com. Come on, <laughs> let's do it. It's so fun. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, you you really in going into a pitching scenario, you really have to have the thing that people are looking for. Like if yeah. you don't have the thing that they're looking for, there's almost no point, you know? So like I've had situations before where people have come to me and they said like, this is what we're looking for. And it's like, well, if I didn't have that, then it's like better to just come up with a brand new idea. That is that thing because yeah. getting the buy-in on that new thing is way, way more likely than for like taking an old thing that you've written and trying to shove it into the box they have yeah. because it's just like, why are you giving me this? This is not, this is cool, but it's not what I need right now. You know, I totally agree. So I would like, like follow the brief. I, like it's totally true in business too. Like in, in filmmaking with like commercial filmmaking and video production and stuff. It's like, if you follow the brief, you're going to have so much more success that if you try to like, you know, work outside the box and impress them with your creativity, it's like, you know, people love creativity, but like they also just need the box to be filled with Wait. whatever they, you know, one of the last podcasts that we recorded before 
going on our sabbatical, we talked about our love of Great British Baking Show. And oh, yeah. Follow the Brief is uh, the professionals reference. I know because I <sighs> caught up and I watched every episode of the professionals because you told mm-hmm. me to. And they yeah. always talk about like they didn't follow the brief. You follow the brief. And that's cooking. Yeah. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's still something creative that needs to adhere to specific <laughs> rules. We're going to have to do another sideshow on the new season, by the way, which I haven't started. Yet. Oh, yeah. No, we started last week. It's very exciting. Oh. But but the professionals, a little side note, my son, Benoit, is named after the <gasps> judge, Benoit, Shut in that show. up. Mm-hmm. That is it. Yeah, I, I, we, yeah. Wa- we were watching that show and we were like, <laughs> Benoit, that's a great name. And we were like, okay. And then Benny and BB, because Benny is his yeah. show. So it's like goes perfect together. And we just thought it was such a cool name. And what? we're like, oh, all right, let's go. Let's go crazy. Let's go French. I thought it was going to be because of Benoit, you know, glass onion, knife oh, out. Yeah. Everyone, everyone says that. They're like, oh, is he going to is he going to just solve a mystery? Is he working on a case? I'm like, no, but he does <laughs> like pastry. Um, <laughs> uh, just for everyone, you want to do you want to tell people what your daughter's name is or oh, do you not want to share? Oh, her name is Grace, but she's named yeah. after my dad, whose name was Gordon. And so oh, it's a tribute, beautiful uh, tribute name for my dad. That's amazing. Yeah. Grace, welcome to the world, Grace. Grace, I can't Grace wait Muriel. To, I can't wait to meet. Oh, Muriel. Oh, to beautiful. keep her to keep her humble, Grace Muriel. There you go. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Benoit Smokey, because know, that was my cool. grandpa's name. That's <laughs> very cool. I like Smokeyism. That's re- you, are you going to call him Smokey just like as the first name I, sometimes? I, I do. I'll do a little bit. I do sometimes. I call him Little Smoke sometimes or Smokey Do. <laughs> Because that's like a good baby. But I think as he gets older, Smoke and Smokey will probably be more of what I call him when he's like an, an actual child or, you know, especially when he's a teenager. But Little Smoke's really cool. I like that little a lot. Little Smoke. Yeah. Little Smoke, Smoke. Smoke, Smoke. I don't know why I like to do two. Like Smokey do, Smoke, Smoke. I just think yeah. like two things together are fun. Yeah. But yeah, there's some people in my family who just call him Smokey, but like not not many so far. Just a couple here and there. Aww. Yeah. All of you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the ISA, the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your log line to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list, which features some of their best writers. Head to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank Anthony de Blasi for coming on the show, to Clinton Cornwell, friend of the show, for making the introduction, our editor Jeff Rymood for doing the editing, thanks to Robert California Jones for handling all of our social media, and thanks to our producer Eric Toms for being awesome and also for being part of the interview. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. What buttons do I push? I checked the settings. I was like, oh, I have to open QuickTime. Um, Oh, hey, Jeff, can you hear us? It's us. Jeff, talking to you. We're back. (laughs) Oh, my God.